Let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to your word now, asking too that the gift of your word may be spread abroad through its translation, through its preaching, that you'd be pleased to use these gifts that we present before you to get your word into the minds and hearts of many more. Amen. Well, some of you will uh, be here, I suspect, for the first time, and even as we're coming to the end of a series in Paul's letter to the Roman church. Do please find it. Uh, It's on page 1141 uh, in the church Bibles. And we began this particular phase of looking at the letter to the Romans uh, in chapter 12. It's a couple of pages beforehand. It's a a couple of verses there at the beginning of chapter 12 that are often used as a way of describing what is it that is our worship. Well, it turns out to be presenting ourselves as an offering, as living sacrifices. And then 12, as it opens up, and 13 are about that, what it is we do with ourselves to uh, live by, by sacrificing ourselves, to put others and their interests ahead of our own. Uh, and the New Testament has a shorthand word for all of that. We call it love. But now, in chapter 15 and verse 16, By the time we've got to that, Paul is saying something very different. Speaking about himself to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering. Here he's talking then about presenting others, the Gentiles in this case, as an offering. Chapter 12, the beginning, presenting ourselves as an offering, now presenting the Gentiles. They're very different, but one grows out of the other, they're connected, and in what way? Well, he started chapter 15 uh, with love and unity, and he started uh, that way because in uh, chapter 14, you'll remember this if you were here last week, uh, he's been looking about the diversity of opinions that there are in the life of the early church and the tensions that there are, and he's urged them This church, made up of people with a Jewish background, made up with people uh, of a Gentile background, he's urged them to get on, to to love each other and to be united, not to look down on one another in any way. And so he begins, he kind of uh, repeats himself at the beginning of chapter 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's the principle. And he bases that on, looks back quickly in verses 3 and 4. For even Christ didn't please himself, but as it's written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Looking back, Christ didn't please himself. What Christ did on the cross was fundamentally for the good of his, Christ's, neighbor. That was written down in Scripture, he says, in verse 4, so that we might be encouraged. 
Then in verse 5, he looks forward a bit. May the God who gives endurance encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. Uh, this, uh, he, he's looking forward to something that is coming. A sense of them being united with one heart and mind uh, and a, a, a voice of praise going out, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, accept one another then as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He, he, this sense of as we accept one another we will find that we grow into this body in which praise is being given to God, and not just from ourselves, but from others around as they notice the impact of unity. And he kind of backs this up with a, a selection of quotations in verses 8 through to 12. Now, in, um, uh, in the way of quoting from the scriptures, what they would have tried to do always is to maximize the, the power of witness. And the way they would do that is to ensure when they were quoting that they'd quote from the law and from the prophets and from what they called the writings, from everything else, basically. There's one quote here from uh, Isaiah. There's one quote here from Deuteronomy, the law, the prophets and the, uh, the law are covered. And there's one from the Psalms, the writings. So the argument that Paul is trying to sustain is that there, there were promises. <coughs> there were promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jacob and so on. And those promises were always that the Gentiles would come in to the people of God. So just to run through them, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Paul is reminding his readers in this mixed church, there was always a hope. People of God may have missed it most of the time, but actually if you look at the scriptures, there was always this hope that the Gentiles would be drawn in. And then he reaches a kind of climax in verse 13. As you, Jews and Gentiles, trust in God together, you are fulfilling the ancient prophecies the ancient promises about how things are finally meant to be. When you're working in unity, you're not just being nice to each other, but you're fulfilling the very purposes of God on earth. You can't do that by being nice. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. But what that mighty power achieves, and this is all kind of written into verse 13, what the mighty power of the Holy Spirit achieves is that united, you overflow with a hope, and that's a kind of code word always, hope, in the New Testament. A hope that's looking not to the stresses of the tensions around the issues that came through in chapter 14, but to the final reconciling of all things as all peoples turn to Christ. So may the God of hope fill you, you Jews and Gentiles, with all joy because he has reconciled you. You are at peace with God, peace with each other, and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. That means looking forward by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's where it's going. But how did that unity come about? How come that there were Gentiles in there with the Jews in the first place? Yes, promised in these uh, prophecies. But how come they're there? 
Well, according to Paul, it's because Paul's own special ministry has been reaching out to Gentiles in places that no one before has preached the gospel. And that's the story he's telling from verses 14 through to the end of where we had tonight, verse 22. And I want to focus, I've kind of raced to all that, because I want to, to get to an extraordinary image that he's using in verse 16. It's not one very familiar to us, and we never like things that make us have to turn the page in order to get them. We don't turn our minds very often. I don't suppose, I don't, hands up those of you who this week have, have consciously had in your mind a picture of Old Testament priests sacrificing bulls and sheep on the altar in Jerusalem. I thought not. It doesn't occur to us very often. But it is an incredibly important uh, use of language. Paul is being described as a priest. There is only one place in the New Testament where the word, this word, is used of Christian ministry, and it's here. Now, the Church of England is pleased to call me a priest, uh, and Mark, uh, and Maya over there. Now, that's because we get to wear dog collars. Well, it's not, it's a sign, we, not because we get to wear dog collars. Um, uh, but the reason it does that is because that word, it hangs on to that word, because it's a good word, as it's intended to be. It's a, it's a, um, a use in our own day uh, of the word presbyteros, which just means an elder, someone set aside with responsibilities within the life of the church, a particular set of responsibilities as an elder to run things. Uh, those were the presbyteroi. And uh, as a kind of by contraction of that, it's come down to us in English as priest. And in that sense, it's a perfectly good word. But there was also another word for a priest, a hierus. And that was much more the, uh, the priest involved in ritual sacrifice, in dealing with these sheep and bulls. And the, that was the role of the Old Testament priest, standing between the people and God, doing whatever had to be done in order to make peace between the people and God. And that kind of model is one we much more associate with the Roman Catholic or the Eastern Orthodox churches. And that's the word Paul uses here. He doesn't mean that he's suddenly woken up and said, I think I'll do something with bread and wine today. It's got nothing to do with baptism and dog collars. And in fact, it, it, it's quite restricted because he has, a, he says, a special grace in respect of the Gentiles to go where nobody else had gone. That was special to him. But though that was special to him, he's perfectly able to recognize that there's a general priesthood for everyone. What's the process involved? Well, what he's making is this claim that in the proclaiming of the gospel, we make those we reach into an offering that's acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that's gigantic. As I say, we don't think about that language. We haven't thought about that language all week. So, of course, we don't think about it. But there's nothing that Paul says... Uh, apart from the fact that he's restricted to the Gentiles, 
that says that ministry is restricted to him. It must represent a claim that you and I are priests in the sense that he means. That we have a responsibility to stand between people and God, not because you fulfill an office in a church or you've been through a ceremony with a bishop, not at all because of that, but just in the act of proclaiming the gospel to the people we encounter, we make them into an offering that's acceptable to God. One person said that it's like the proclaiming of the gospel, which is like the sword of the spirit. That process, that use of that sword, that proclamation, as people turn to Christ, makes them into the offering that's acceptable to God. I reckon that's gigantic in the same way that Isaiah chapter 6 was gigantic. Because that tells you what your week is supposed to be about next week, before we get to meet again. Our job, indeed our highest vocation, is to look on every person we meet as a person to whom the gospel is to be proclaimed so as to turn them from common use to holy, so as to be fitted for worship of the Most High God. From verse 16, we can say this Trinity Sunday that we serve God the Son by proclaiming the gospel that comes from God the Father so that God the Spirit makes people holy. And that ambition, that priestly duty for your day and your week gigantic in itself, is an ambition big enough that it connects to the end of all time. Like that blessing said in verse 13, as Gentiles join Jews, the miracle of what God has achieved on the cross is made visible, and so there can be hope. Well, and then from verse 17 onwards, Paul says, now look, The only thing I'm entitled to talk about here is what Christ has done through me, not through anyone else. And I have done what was asked of me. Well, I have so far. I do still have one or two things to do, one or two places to go. But I want you to know, Romans, that what I've said and done has been in response to what God himself told me. So if I ask you to help me in the future, and he's going to do that, and we'll find out uh, a bit more about that next week, you can have confidence that I am the real deal. What I'm preaching is true. Uh, What I'm uh, advising is taking shape in you as I write. And it just strikes me as extraordinary that someone can get towards the end of what he considers his life's work to be, and Paul seems to have had a sense of that, and say, I've done what I was put here to do. How few of us get to say it. And yet we can say from this chapter that we know what it is we're here to do. Present yourselves, that's in chapter 12, work with others in the body, love them. And then here, present others, draw others into the body. If we put those together, our life's work is this. Draw others into the body by proclaiming the gospel and then love them, building them up rather than focusing on yourself. Some of you are heading off to college soon, once the nightmare of exams is passed, and you think you're off to college to study chemistry or sports science or history. 
And Paul says, no, you're not. You are there with a priestly duty to proclaim the gospel and to love the people who are the result of that proclamation. Those of us uh, will be here who are planning a bank holiday or a half-term holiday. And of course, leisure is fine. But only if it sustains us to do what we're here for. Putting others first has to mean, if the others are unbelievers, proclaiming the gospel and loving the people who are the result of that proclamation. Some of us, after a bank holiday, will go back to work. Some of us, I suspect, looking out among you, uh, uh, as I look at, your, uh, look at you and think of your professions, some of you are probably going to be going to work on bank holiday. Going to work's fine. You need to live, and it's great if you can enjoy it, your work. But don't lose sight of what you're here for. That's what Paul would say. He had his work. He made tents, we, we, uh, we reckon, from uh, hints and guesses we get at other points of the scriptures. So he's not like a kind of, you know, he's not like, like a, a clergyman. You can take him seriously. He did know uh, what it was to do a good day's work, not like the rest of us. Um, so, but don't lose sight of what you're here for, is what he would say. There's nothing in any of this that says, of course, that it's easy. I tend to find I want to make a number of objections to Paul, because I actually find this business of proclaiming the gospel uh, very difficult. I'm really not very good at it. But nothing Paul says, says he found it easy. And finding it difficult is not a reason not to do it. If you were listening carefully, you will have heard Isaiah being warned uh, after he, he did that wonderful thing of um, uh, his sin is atoned for and, and he's freed. And uh, God says, who can I send? And Isaiah bravely responds, here am I, send me. And we think, oh, isn't that lovely? But actually... Immediately, the message comes back, I will send you. And you know what? It's going to be completely useless. Isaiah didn't find it easy to proclaim the good news in his generation either. There's a kind of fierceness here. And some of us may want to say, but hang on, isn't there a kind of value if I'm a, a nurse or a teacher or in a caring profession in simply doing my job because caring has its own value? Well, maybe. But of course, there might be value too in making widgets or being unemployed. Let's not get too precious about our work. And maybe we can say that it's okay in Paul's terms if the path is a bit like this, if we're doing other things along the way, so long as that direction is there. Don't lose track of what it's all about in the end. Proclaim the gospel. See people made holy by God's Spirit. Live with them in love and unity, and that's the one hope available. What is worship? Well, I hope you've been here often enough, long enough, to know that it's not singing songs. I greatly enjoy it, though we may. It's not being nice. Rather, it's making ourselves wholly available to God as living sacrifices, so that he can make us priests who proclaim the good news of Jesus and make the world holy. So God forgive us for those times when we make the mission of the church, which is in truth the mission of Christ through the church, a kind of bolt-on, an optional extra, 
fine for people who like doing that sort of thing. Mission is not a bolt-on. That's why we're here, if we take these chapters seriously. I love Billy Graham's definition of a Christian. It's not turning someone into a follower of mission, not turning someone into a follower of Jesus, but turning someone into someone who turns others into followers of Jesus. You see, it goes on, cascades along. It's not enough for any one of us, if we follow Christ, simply to think, few have arrived. One of the funerals we've had this week, in one of the funerals we had this week, Albert Milnes, the, uh, the Psalm 121 was chosen. And it speaks of coming and going. Uh, if you wanted to, you could think of uh, Jesus' imagery as the good shepherd, of the, the sheep that come in uh, and go out to find pasture. It's not enough to come in. It's not enough to come. We go out again to proclaim the good news. We come and we go. Why is it worth going on about this at such length? Well, I suspect because of this. There isn't one of us who falls into proclamation of the gospel by accident. Never has any one of you said to me on a Sunday, you know, Alan, the most extraordinary thing happened to me in the week. I was cutting our hedge and I saw our neighbour... And all of a sudden, just by accident, I found myself explaining the good news of Jesus. It doesn't happen by accident. We will only proclaim the good news if we do it deliberately. And it's hard work, it's difficult. So why would we do it at all? We might do it, uh, we might make sporadic efforts if there's a bit of guilt around. You know you really should. But what better way to keep a long-term, indeed a lifelong effort, sustained than a realisation that it's what we're here for? Don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking, says Paul. Recognise this, that God has a mission to the world. And if I can kind of move the geography around a little, taking up his and ours, we could say God has a mission to the world from Jerusalem to Illyrica, to Rome, next week we'll hear about Spain, and finally to the ends of NR2. And you are caught up in it. You have been given a place in it in virtue of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole world will eventually be an offering acceptable to God. And you and I get to play a part, proclaiming the gospel so that God's Holy Spirit can make people holy for him. Let's not settle for less. Let's pray. Lord God, we began our time together by thinking of one thing we'd like to do before we died. We heard of the vision from Isaiah. We do not want, as we sit here tonight, 
to do a little more mission than we have been doing because we feel guilty. But we do want to understand our life's purpose. We do want to enter into the purposes that you have marked out for us. Each one uniquely different, each one fulfilling that duty in as unique a way as Paul himself did. But as we sit, we are in one sense on our knees, asking of you that you would open to us the path uniquely for us in which we might best proclaim the gospel to those we encounter at school, at work, in our family, at college, wherever it may be, so that the world itself and its peoples will be made an offering acceptable to Jesus Christ and sanctified by his Spirit. Amen.